you, Bethany. Let's take a bowls, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that tonight as we come into this place that we can sing praises to your name. We thank you, Father, that we can talk about the joy of the Christmas season. We can talk about the joy of knowing that Jesus Christ, the Savior, was born. We thank you, Father God, for the knowledge that we have a Saviour who left heaven's glory and died upon the cross of Calvary, that we might be saved. And we do pray, Father God, tonight as we take the time to look into your word, that you would encourage us through your word, you challenge us by its truth. Lord, give me wisdom, I pray, from on high as I share your word this night. I might have uh, wisdom from in you. I might speak in accordance with your truth and that we might leave this place having known that we'd be in your presence. Bless our time, we pray now in your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe, but it's almost Christmas time again. (laughs) So, it seems like yesterday we were celebrating it, uh, but it's going to be next week. Not next week, the week after, I should say. I'm making it a bit too strong, aren't I? Okay, a couple of weeks away, Christmas, and, uh, you know, I, for one, am excited. I love Christmas time, and uh, uh, it's always a joyous time. But, you know, on that very first Christmas in Bethlehem of Judea, The earth was oblivious to all that was going on. They had no idea what was happening in that little town of Bethlehem where that babe was being born and laid in a manger. There was no grand expectation. There was no excitement in the villages. There was no excitement on the hillsides. Mankind was unaware of what was about to unfold. But on the other hand, though, in heaven there was no such ignorance of the facts. Heaven wasn't oblivious to what was about to unfold, wasn't oblivious to what was about to happen. The angels were waiting with eager anticipation to break forth with praise and adoration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And when they did come, they declared glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. Front of you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And we all know that's why Jesus Christ came. This is what was foremost on his mind when he came to earth. He knew that he came to earth for the purpose of dying as our Savior. He was born to die. And the most important issue at Christmas is not so much that Jesus Christ came, although that is important, But the most important issue at Christmas time is why he came. You see, there's no salvation in his birth. His sinless life in and of itself did not provide redemption for you and I. His example, as flawless as it was, could never rescue you and I from sin. Even his teachings, the greatest truths and the greatest wisdom of all time could not save us. And the reason is because, as we know, Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. 
And it was only Jesus Christ who could pay that price of our redemption. So the ultimate purpose in Christ coming to earth was so that he might die. That's why John the Baptist in John chapter 1 and verse 29 said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That's why he came. He came to die. That's the Christmas story. That's the Christmas story the world chooses to ignore. It's the part of the Christmas story that the world chooses to not mention. But as you and I think of those tiny hands and feet of that babe in a manger, you and I need to remember that one day nails were going to pierce those hands and pierce those feet for you and I. To affix him to a cross, we might be saved. You need to remember that that warm and soft baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day have a spear thrust through his side as he died for you and I. We must never forget that in the shadow of the manger is the cross. Now, as we look forward to Christmas, I want you to note with me here in Hebrews chapter 2, five reasons why Jesus was born to die. Or to put it another way, five reasons why his death was not a tragedy. Five reasons why his death was not a tragedy, but was something that was glorious for you and I. Now, I know it is Christmas uh, coming up, and I know I started out with an introduction to Christmas, but what I want to do tonight is I want us to have a look at what is the consequence of him coming as a babe for you and I. He came to die, and that was not a tragedy. It was not a tragedy, first of all. His death was not a tragedy, first of all, because Jesus became our substitute. Look at verse 9. It says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, the Bible tells us here in verse 9, was made a little lower than the angels. Now, you and I need to understand that when the Bible talks about that Jesus Christ being made a little lower than the angels, that is, does not mean that Jesus Christ somehow becomes less than God. That his incarnation, he was no longer God, that somehow he was lower than God. He was not in that same league as God, that somehow Jesus Christ being made a little lower than the angels was diminished in his deity. Jesus was God and always will be God. And he still was fully God when he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And he was still God when he died upon the cross of Calvary for you and I. But Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels because he suffered death. Notice what he says in verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. You see, angels are not eternal. They were created beings, just like you and I. Now, it's true, they do not die. But they were created beings like you and I, and they do not die. There's no death in angels. Death is reserved for human beings, reserved for you and I. The reason why you and I die is so that God can provide a savior for you and I. And death is reserved for people, humans. 
And because Jesus Christ became fully man when he was incarnate, when he became the God-man, because he was fully God and fully man at the same time, he now became subject to death. He could die. And it's in this sense, in the fact that Jesus Christ could suffer death, that he was made little lower than the angels. The angels could not die. Jesus Christ became a man, and therefore he could die. He could experience, so he could suffer death for you and I. And notice what it says. It says he suffered death, here in verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus Christ suffered death so that he might be crowned with glory and honor. The idea here is that the reward for his suffering death, the reward for him becoming a little lower than the angels, and therefore suffering the death of the cross for you and I, the reward for that was that he was raised up and he was crowned with glory and honor. He was raised up to be seated on the right hand of the majesty on high, crowned with glory and honor. This is the whole cycle of what's happening here. God himself, the second person of the Godhead, becomes God incarnate in the Jesus Christ. He suffered death for you and I, and he was crowned with glory and honor when he rose and ascended back up to glory. Why did he suffer death? Well, the writer is saying here so that Jesus might be our substitute by dying in our place. Look what he says, goes on to say. He says, but we see Jesus who has made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus Christ became a little lower than the angels, suffered death, so that he might indeed taste death for everyone, for all of us. This is the marvel of the Christmas story. The marvel of the Christmas story is that God left heaven's glory and Jesus Christ became God-man. He became God incarnate there in Bethlehem of Judea. And that same Jesus was born in Bethlehem for the purpose of dying on the cross of Calvary so that we could be saved. And notice as he says he suffered death. Suffering death for us. In other words, Jesus did not simply die. He did not die easily, but he suffered anguish upon that cross for you and I. And verse 9 ends up with a saying that says, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Death here is represented as something bitter, something unpalatable, something unpleasant. As an object would be to the taste, you know, as you and I would taste something that was terrible, taste something that had no flavor to it or had a flavor that was just repulsive to us. That's the idea here. He suffered death and he tasted death. It was something that was repugnant, something unpalatable, something unpleasant. The word taste means to eat, to partake of, to swallow. Jesus' death was excruciatingly painful. The death he suffered for you and I was excruciatingly painful. 
And yet Jesus Christ willingly, voluntarily left heaven's glory, became a man, went to the cross of Calvary, suffered there for you and I, so that the grace of God, but by the grace of God, he might partake of death for everyone. Crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. It was an act of God's grace that Christ tasted death for you and me. God in his grace allowed Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, to leave heaven's glory, become a babe in Bethlehem, to live amongst us and die on the cross of Calvary so that sinners like you and I could be recipients of God's grace. He didn't die because we deserved it. He died because of God's unmerited favor. He suffered death as an act of grace. On the cross, Jesus Christ received the full expression of God's wrath against sin. The great debt that you and I had incurred, that debt of sin that we'd incurred, and the debt of sin that mankind had incurred, he paid for in full at Calvary. And that is grace indeed. He was born to die. Therefore his death was not a drag tragedy because he became our substitute. Secondly, he was born to die and his death was not a tragedy because he pioneered our salvation. Jesus pioneered our salvation. Verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. You know, it was necessary for Jesus Christ to die, but he had to die as our substitute. And according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10a, it was fitting that God who created all things and who made all things for his glory should also provide salvation. Notice what it says. It says, For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. It became, it was fitting. The God who created all things, the God who owns all things, it was fitting that he would provide salvation for all men. The word captain here in verse 10, in bringing many sons under the glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, is the word author, leader, or pioneer. He refers to someone who starts something. He refers to someone who opens the way for others to follow, hence the pioneer. And so in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, what it's saying is saying this, it was fitting that Jesus Christ, who is the creator of all things, who has had all things created for his glory, it is fitting that he is the one who leads the way in bringing many sons to glory. That's what it says. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He's made the captain of our salvation. It's only fitting that he should be made captain of our salvation to bring many sons to glory because he is the creator. He is the one for whom all things were created. 
It's fitting that he should die for his creation. You see, there's only one way to the Father in heaven. That's Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John 14, 6 says? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh the Father but by me. Acts 4, 12, neither is salvation. In any other, for there's no other name on heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the means of our salvation. You see, God had set the price of salvation. The price of salvation was that someone had to die for sin. And God's love showed itself in the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. God demonstrated his love for you and I by sending his son to be the pioneer of our salvation, to be the captain of our salvation so that many may be brought to glory. And it goes on to say that Jesus is made perfect through sufferings. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now what that means is this, it means to render him qualified for the work to which God had appointed him. So that he could be the saviour suitable to save us, to redeem us. It doesn't mean that somehow Jesus Christ was sinful prior to his sacrifice and that he was made holy through his sufferings. Nor is it that he was not in all respects perfect man at his incarnation and still perfect man at his sacrifice on Calvary. But the idea here is that his sufferings, as he suffered, he was made wholly suited to be our saviour. You see, Christ was not made better because Christ was perfect. You couldn't add anything to his character. He was already was perfect. He was perfectly holy before he came to earth. He was perfectly holy as he lived this life amongst mankind for 30 uh, plus years. He was perfectly holy when he went to Calvary. There was no sin in him. Nothing that happened in his life made him holy. But what happened was at Calvary, he was rendered complete, fully qualified as saviour by his sufferings. You see, in order for Jesus Christ to save us, his incarnation was not enough. In order for Jesus Christ to save us, his life was not enough. In order for him to save us, his words, his messages, his testimonies were not enough. In order for Jesus Christ to be the captain of our salvation, to bring many sons to glory, he had to suffer and die. And as he died upon the cross of Calvary, as a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for you and I, he was declared to be perfect, complete, ideally situated to save us. That's why God can say in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
It pleased the Father to bruise the Son because in bruising the Son, in pouring the wrath of God upon Him on Calvary, Jesus Christ became the means of bringing many sons to glory. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, God sends His Son to die for us. He's born in Bethlehem. He lives amongst us. He dies upon the cross of Calvary and God says of that act that it pleases him to bruise his son so that his son could be the captain, be the the sufficient one to die that you and I might be led to glory. God's pleased to allow his son to die so that we might be saved. Jesus Christ was born to die. Therefore his death was not a tragedy because Jesus became our substitute. It was not a tragedy because he pioneered our salvation. And his death was not a tragedy, thirdly, because Jesus sanctified his people. Verse 11 through 13. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Jesus is holy. And the declaration here in verse 11 is that because he is holy, he makes those who trust him holy also. For both he that is sanctified, set apart, holy, for he that is sanctified, and they that are sanctified are all one. Because he is set apart unto God, because he is holy, when you and I trust him as our saviour, we too are sanctified. You know, the greatest theological dilemma of all times, was resolved at Calvary. I mean, think about it. God loves sinners. Always has done. Since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God loves sinners. And we know that God does not want to punish sinners. For 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God loves sinners. He does not want one person to spend one moment in hell and the lake of fire. He loves sinners. But the dilemma is this, to simply accept us and ignore our sin is a problem. Because in order for God to ignore our sin, to overlook our sin, would go against his very character. His own holiness would be tainted. The very holiness of God would be washed with our sin and God would no longer be holy. If God does not deal with sin, if he does not enact the penalty for sin, which is the wage of sin is death, if God does not see to it that someone dies for sinners and dies for our sin, if the debt was not paid, God could not save us. And yet God loves us. And God resolved this dilemma. Between on one hand Him loving sinners like you and I, and on the other hand having to be injustice and righteous, having to deal with sin, 
God resolved the dilemma by taking our punishment on himself. He sent his son to die in our place so that he might become the just and the justifier, that he might remain righteous and holy and at the same time deal with sin. God brought love and justice together at the cross. And in so doing, he satisfied the demands of both. And therefore, we are sanctified by one who has been sanctified. That's verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. But you know the amazing thing in this verse is the very next phrase. It says this. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. And in verses 12 and 13, the writer states three evidence of the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, calls his people brethren. They come from Psalm 22 and verse 22 in verse 12. And in verse, eight, uh, verse 13, he quotes from Isaiah chapter uh, 8, verse 7 and verse 18. And here's the quote, verse 12, saying... I declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And then verse 13. And again I will put my trust in him. And again behold I and the children which God hath given me. In each one of these examples, we see the Lord willing to associate himself with his brethren. So think about that. When you and I got saved... When we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, and you and I were gloriously saved, what he did with you and I was he made us part of his family. As many as received him, John 1, 12 tells us, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You and I have been made part of his family. We're declared to be the sons of God, joint heirs with Christ, so that you and I can now call him Abba Father. And the glorious truth is, he delights in calling us his brethren. Beloved, we're not just saved, but we're family. We're not just saved, but we're sanctified. We're not just saved, but we are the sons of God. We are the children of God. And he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. But I thought about this this week. How often do we find ourselves ashamed to say that we belong to him? He's not ashamed to call us his children, to call us his brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us his brethren, joint heirs with Christ. He's not ashamed of that. But how often are we ashamed to acknowledge that we are his children? We shouldn't be. Because Jesus Christ came to sanctify us, to set us apart under God, to make us part of his family, to make us the children of God, joined heirs with Christ. And of that we should be proud. We ought to be willing to shout it from the mountaintops. Jesus was born to die and therefore his death was not a tragedy because Jesus 
became our substitute. He pioneered our salvation. He sanctified his people. And fourthly, his death was not a tragedy because he conquered Satan. Look at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. You know, there's a remarkable statement here in verse 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. The remarkable statement is, this statement, that Satan has the power of death. He holds the power of death. You know, Satan's great aim, which it has been since the beginning, Satan's great aim is to get every person under his control. To keep mankind in slavery to sin. So that he can ensure that they die without knowing Christ. They die without having eternal life. He has the power of death. He is holding in his hands the power of death. That people die without Christ. They die eternally without him. But the glorious truth is that Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the power of Satan and destroy the power of death. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3.8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And beloved, that's why Jesus was born and died. That's why he came at Christmas time. That's why Jesus Christ left heaven's glory. I was born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. The reason why he came to die upon the cross of Calvary was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the power of death, to deliver us from bondage. Look in verse 15. And to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, the fear of death rules like a tyrant over mankind. If there's one thing that most people fear, it's dying. The unsaved, that's what they fear, dying. That's why so much, so much millions of dollars are spent every year on all these cures. You know, I mean, uh, whether it be creams to put on your face to get rid of the aging, whether it be pills to take to uh, extend your life, whether it be fish oil or this other thing, whatever you might take to extend your life and... You know, gymnasiums popping up. I mean, I know, Graf does more gymnasiums than population almost. You know, they're popping up all over the place. Uh, we must be uh, physical nuts around town. I don't know if you've seen it all, but even the old repairs and spares now has become a gymnasium. I just don't know how you find enough people to go to these gyms, but apparently we are uh, crazed about it. Everyone wants to get fit, prolong their life, to make it uh, live longer. Why? Because there's a fear of death. Death reigns like a tyrant over mankind. And rightly so. Satan holds the power of death, and if they die without Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire, separated from God for eternity. It won't be a party. 
They will suffer torment in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever because they have rejected Jesus Christ, their Savior. But you know, for the believer, death is not a tyrant. Because Jesus Christ won the victory over death for us. That's what it says here in verse uh, 14 and 15. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took the same, that through the death, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus Christ became a man, died upon the cross of Calvary, that he might destroy the power of the devil. He might win the victory over the devil, over the grave, over death and over sin. To deliver you and I from bondage. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And in verse 16 he goes on to say, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ did not partake the nature of angels. He became a little older than the angels, and what he did, he took upon him the nature of man. And when he talks about the seed of Abraham, it means that he took upon him the nature of the people of faith. Christ assumed human nature. He took upon him flesh and blood. He became a man that he might die for our sins so that we might be saved. And we can praise the Lord. Jesus Christ was born to die, to deliver you and I from the bondage of death and sin. Jesus was born to die, therefore his death was not a tragedy because Jesus became our substitute. He pioneered our salvation, he sanctified his people, he conquered Satan. And his death was not a tragedy, lastly, because Jesus became our high priest. Verse 17 and 18, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted. This is one of the most remarkable passages in the whole of Scripture. In order to fully and completely represent the Father, uh, represent us rather, to the Father in heaven, Jesus Christ became like us in every way except for sin. He was made like you and I in every way so that he could understand us and all of our struggles. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faith-like priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, that he is able to succor them that are tempted." Basically, he said, here I am alongside you. 
I've experienced the same sufferings that you have experienced. And I know what it's like. Think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ experienced everything that you and I go through in life. He suffered. He knows exactly what we go through when we suffer. If Jesus Christ were not like us, he could not be our high priest. Representing us before the Father. Making reconciliation for us. Notice what it says there in verse 17. This is wherefore in all things it behooved and he made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful priest in, all, in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. The word reconciliation there is the word propitiation or the word atonement. He became like us so that through his sufferings he could be a make reconciliation for us. He could be a atonement for us. He could propitiate for us. He could satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God on our behalf. And neither his deity nor his humanity are negotiable. If we diminish either his deity or his humanity in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, then he's unable to save us. But because Jesus Christ remained fully God when he became fully man, so that his deity and his humanity became one in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, he could be our sacrifice. He could suffer for you and I. He could render reconciliation for us. He could become our propitiation. But at the same time, he can represent us before the Father as our great high priest because he suffered as we suffered. So it says in verse 17, For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted. He knows exactly what we're going through. You know, the high priest in the Old Testament wore on his breastplate some stones. There was 12 stones on his, on his breastplate. And on those 12 stones were engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on his shoulders he also bore the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one commentator said this, the high priest would therefore be in constant sympathy with the people of God, carrying them on his heart and in his work on the shoulders. Jesus did not wear the high priest's breastplate, but the wound in his chest and the cross on his shoulders are even more eloquent testimony to his heart for us. And it's work on our behalf to make propitiation for us. Because Jesus Christ added humanity to his deity. He not only could suffer and die on Calvary to be our propitiation, but he could experience human suffering. And because he suffered, he can aid you and I. When you and I attempt it, when you and I suffer, when you and I struggle... He knows what we're going through. As verse 18 says, he really does know what we're going through. He himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. You know, it's astonishing. There's a God in heaven who by experience knows what I'm going through. 
And because he knows by experience what I'm going through, he can aid me, not just feel bad for me. You know, when we go to the Lord and we pray, and we pray to the Lord, our high priest is there representing us before the Father, and he's not just feeling bad for us, but he actually understands what we're going through. He knows our anguish. He knows our pain. He therefore can succor us. He can therefore encourage us. He can therefore comfort us. He's able to represent us before the Father as a sympathetic high priest, and that is a glorious truth. And that was made possible because he was born to die. Jesus' death was not a tragedy because ultimately he was born to die that through his death he might become our substitute. He might pioneer our salvation. He might sanctify his people. He might conquer Satan. And through his death, Jesus became our sympathetic high priest. You know, this Christmas, as we think about the babe in a manger, let's remember Jesus Christ was born to die. And born to die for sinners like you and me. And because he was, we have a wonderful Savior and a glorious, sympathetic high priest who intercedes on our behalf before the throne of glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for his death upon Calvary. We thank you that he came to earth. He was made a little lower than the angels. That he became like us. That he became a man, the God-man. That he might suffer upon the cross of Calvary. That he might purchase our salvation. And he might therefore represent us as a sympathetic high priest before the Father. Oh Lord, as we look to Christmas, may we be thankful that Jesus Christ was not just born in Bethlehem of Judea and laid in a manger, but that Jesus Christ, the Savior, was born. And that 30-odd years later, he willingly walked up Calvary's hill and laid down his life as a sacrifice and a substitute for us, was buried and rose again the third day and ascended up into glory, crowned with glory and honor, as our glorious Savior. We thank you for that. We pray that, Lord, you'd help us to remember that as we look to Christmas this year. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have to take a hymn.